Welcome to the Science Ramble, where each month we look at a part of the human experience and how it links to a recently published advance in the natural sciences. My name is Simon Lichtinger, and today we'll talk about randomness and its generation with lasers. When I was very young, my grandmother would play board games with me and my siblings and cousins. A range of games were involved, but one which I distinctly remember was a version of snakes and ladders. The concept is very simple. The players move up a path on a board, progressing in turns by the rolling of a die. To spice things up, some spaces are connected by snakes, along which you have to slide down, throwing you back to early in the game. Others are connected by ladders, which let you advance by climbing to further ahead along the trail. Needless to say, there was a very long snake located as a trap just before the finish line, ready to bring down six-year-olds somewhat too full of their ability to roll sixes. This game, to a large extent because of its board design, which fitted in very nicely with the 60s aesthetic of my grandmother's kitchen, was one of my favourite. That is, until one fateful day, I think it was during a Christmas holiday, when I figured out one very important thing about it. It was completely random. There were no decisions involved, and so nothing I did had any effect on the outcome of the game whatsoever. I recognise now, of course, that this can be a desirable feature of a children's game, as everyone has the same chance of winning and no one feels left out. However, perhaps because I was too keen on winning as a child, I started to prefer games which mix an element of strategy into the randomness. Though I may not have felt like it at the time, I was obviously not the first to figure this one out. It doesn't come as a surprise, to me at least, that some of the oldest board games involved both strategy and chance. The oldest we know about today is called Senate, and is thought to have been played more than 5,000 years ago, in the early dynastic period of ancient Egypt. Although the rules have not been preserved in their entirety, and are assumed to have changed through the three millennia during which the game was played, some things are known about them. Two players progress a number of pieces across 30 squares, where the number of squares to advance in each move is determined by which of two sides two wooden sticks land on after throw. As a sort of prototype of the modern two-in-one game, Senate boards were often made as game boxes with another game on the opposite side, now known as the Royal Game of Ur. It is thought to function similarly, involving 20 squares along which to progress the player's pieces, though this time chance is brought in by a number of four-sided dice. What is intriguing about both of these games is the metaphysical role soon attributed to them. The 30 squares of Senate came to represent the journey to the afterlife, and a Babylonian clay tablet dated to 177 BC and now housed in the British Museum details various superstitions associated with events in the royal game of Ur. Next to the use in games of chance, early dice made of animal knuckle bones might have been rolled for fortune-telling in the Middle East, India and China. Although we will never know exactly what people of 5,000 years ago thought on these occasions, it appears that for a long time humans have held a fascination with randomness, as something both transcending and inherent in the experience of the world. Even if some of this notion may have persisted to the present day in Western culture, in something like tarot card reading, such practices are now confined within the label of pseudoscience. In an ironic twist, however, the need for randomness in the form of random numbers is as large as never before. There are two broad fields of modern science and computing for which they are essential, Monte Carlo methods and cryptography. The first term, coined after the famous Casino de Monte Carlo in Monaco, describes a variety of techniques for solving complex mathematical problems using random numbers. 
Although in its modern form, it only attained widespread use from the 1940s, after it was employed in nuclear weapons research at the Los Alamos laboratory. A similar idea was practiced in the 19th century. Based on what is known as Buffon's needle problem, it is possible to relate the mathematical constant of pi to the probability of a needle intersecting a series of drawn lines when thrown onto a piece of paper. Therefore, by throwing a needle many times, or indeed many needles at once, and counting intersections, one can obtain a numerical estimate for pi. While this tabletop experiment illustrates how randomness can be used to solve a mathematical problem, it is only when the problem contains very many variables that Monte Carlo methods become especially useful. It is therefore said that Monte Carlo scales better with the number of dimensions of the problem than traditional techniques. Indeed, many problems for modern computing involve such complex systems, ranging from finance markets and risk assessment to the magnetic properties of materials and the folding of proteins in biology. How the idea of Monte Carlo is implemented in each case may be slightly different, but what all of these approaches have in common is their reliance upon very large amounts of high-quality random numbers. A very different application for which random numbers are essential is communication, or rather, secure communication. Suppose you and me want to exchange messages in such a way that, even if someone intercepted our messages, they would not be able to read them. This is the core task of cryptography. There are two principal ways of achieving this, if we leave out quantum encryption for the time being, as it is not yet practical on a large scale. We could use a symmetric algorithm, we both have the same secret piece of information used to encode and to decode our messages. The obvious challenge with this is how we might exchange that secret piece of information in the first place. The alternative is an asymmetric algorithm, where each of us creates their own secret piece of information, the private key, which is used to decode messages which were encrypted using a complementary public key, which can be shared freely. No matter which method we choose, however, we always need that secret piece of information which an attacker wouldn't be able to guess, like a password of sorts. High-quality random numbers lend themselves very naturally to this task. You may have noticed how I've been talking about high-quality random numbers, and at this point we should talk about what that means and how they can be generated. Humans, for instance, are notoriously bad at coming up with random information, and the power of suggestion over being put on the spot like this is exploited by con artists and magicians alike. The rolling of dice seems more secure if the dice are fair. The basis for randomness is that it involves what is called a chaotic process, where very small changes in the initial conditions, like how we hold and throw the dice, lead to unpredictable behavior in the outcome. You might have heard about the butterfly effect in this context. This is not to say, however, that a skilled dice thrower might not be able to manipulate their chances. In the game of craps, players want to avoid rolling a sum of seven from two six-sided dice. And there are in fact courses on advantage playing, which supposedly teach you how to pick up and throw the dice to avoid the unfavorable outcome. I'm not in a place to judge whether this really works, and if it does, whether it's sufficient to overcome the house advantage. The main limitation to using dice for the purposes discussed earlier is however their throughput. For a sense of scale, my own research is in computer simulations of proteins, and just to initialize one of my simulations would require several millions of dice throws, let alone the billions upon billions needed to run them. It's clear that random number generation needs to be automated. If I ask my computer to give me some random numbers, what I get out comes from a pseudo-random number generator. They use mathematical algorithms to twist around an initial seed and obtain a long sequence of seemingly unpredictable and uncorrelated numbers. 
Importantly, if the same seed is used, the resulting stream of numbers will be identical. The process is therefore deterministic. This can be useful in some cases, such as making simulations reproducible, and in general pseudo-random number generators are very fast and convenient to use. On the other hand, for applications in cryptography, this is very dangerous, as an attacker may be able to deduce or manipulate the random seed, which obviously compromises security. For this reason, true random number generators exist, which rely on a physical process that is hard or impossible to tamper with. This can be either a chaotic process, in other words, one for which the laws of physics would in theory permit prediction, but in practice cannot be tracked, or an inherently random process. The former may be atmospheric or thermal noise, for example, while the latter is related to quantum physics. The laws of quantum mechanics can indeed guarantee us that some experiments have outcomes that would remain unpredictable, even if we had perfect knowledge of all initial conditions and unlimited computing power. Commercially, true random number generators are widely used, but an issue is often their speed. Fast generation of large amounts of random data is therefore a field of active research, into which the study featured in today's episode falls. Before we move on to see how lasers come into play, we will need to briefly look into how randomness can be assessed in practice, because such validation is crucial to developing any new method of random number generation. In particular, let's talk about complexity and entropy. Consider the sequence of numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Pretty non-random, right? But what exactly makes it non-random, when after all it could have been produced by, say, throwing a dice, just with low probability? It all boils down to that I can find an easy rule to describe the sequence. Give numbers up to 5 in ascending order. The existence of such a rule means that the sequence has a low complexity, Bear in mind though that a pseudo-random number generator in itself is just a rule. Therefore, some well-established statistical tests for complexity have been developed, which are used to rate sequences of random numbers. Another point to consider is the information content in a sequence, called its entropy. If I were to throw a fair coin, then each outcome, each up-down result, provides me with exactly one bit of entropy. A bit here is just a name for an on-off type of state. If, however, I have a coin which lands on heads in 80% of the cases, but only 20% of throws will give tails, then each throw contains less information. In order to obtain one bit of entropy, I would need to combine results from multiple throws. Again, more general tests of this property exist, and together with tests for complexity, and some others, they have been compiled into collections of tests which new random number generators need to pass. In February 2021, a group of scientists from various universities published an article entitled Massively Parallel Ultra-Fast Random Bit Generation with a Chip-Scale Laser in the renowned journal Science. This is not in fact the first time lasers are used for random bit generation, however it is by far the fastest application of the principle to date, with a peak speed of 250 terabits per second. For comparison, that's roughly half of the total internet bandwidth in 2019. To begin with, the authors present the principles of how the laser is constructed. Roughly speaking, any semiconductor laser uses the fact that electrons can occupy distinct sets of energy levels around the atoms. On absorbing energy, an electron can jump up one or more levels, and dropping down these levels after a certain amount of time releases this energy in the form of a photon. 
These photons, if they have the right amount of energy, are perceived as light. Atoms in solid substances are rarely isolated, however, and the energy levels combine to form what is known as bands. In a solid electrical conductor, such as a metal for instance, electrons are free to occupy the higher lying conduction bands, which allows them to move across the material and thus conduct an electrical current. In electrical insulators, on the other hand, there's a very large gap in energy between the resting state of the electrons, called the valence band, and the conduction band. Therefore, there is a large barrier for electrons to move, and hence the material does not conduct electricity. A semiconductor lies somewhere in between. Energy from heat or an applied electrical voltage might be enough to put some electrons into the conduction band, and whether or not the material conducts electricity can be switched. This forms the basis of modern computers. Electrons in the conduction band can also drop back down into valence band though, by sending off a photon in what is called spontaneous emission. How fast this happens depends on the material. If it happens at good efficiency, we can use a semiconductor for the purpose of emitting that light, which is what's going on in an LED. Lasers create light by a similar process. However, in this case, emission of one photon is stimulated by another photon moving past. If the geometrical shape of the semiconductor is suitable, this leads to a cascade of many coherent photons being released, working together to form a very intense beam of light. Given that this is such a highly ordered process, it's not entirely obvious where the randomness comes in. The trick is that at the start of each cascade of stimulated emission, there needs to be an event of spontaneous emission, kicking it all off. During that spontaneous emission, a piece of information is encoded in the photon, called the phase. This is truly random by the laws of quantum physics, and it's amplified through all the stimulated emissions which follow. All we need to do is find a way of measuring this to extract the randomness. In previous work, this has been done by crossing two laser beams. If they have the same phase, they add up. If they have the opposite phase, they cancel out. This is called interference, and happens because light has some properties of a wave. You can try that out with actual water waves if you drop two pebbles next to each other in a still lake. The pattern of hills and troughs which arises is analogous to how one would measure the phase of a laser. The researchers in our study adopted a slightly different approach. If the semiconductor of a laser has a broad, rectangular shape, many of the emission cascades can happen at the same time in different directions. These different modes can now form an interference pattern by themselves from a single laser which can be observed by placing a high-speed camera at the end. The advantage of this setup is that all the different modes interact to add a chaotic layer of randomness onto the true quantum randomness in spontaneous emission. It's therefore possible to treat arrays of the interference pattern as independent random number generators operating in parallel, which increases the speed of the overall generator drastically. The problem with this is that there may be correlations between those spots in the interference patterns. This means, in essence, that the random output might in fact not be fully random. The main achievement of this paper is now the choice of shape for the semiconductor. The scientists managed to show that if it has the shape of a bow tie, the unwanted correlations largely disappear, for which they present several pieces of evidence. By looking at what amount of correlation still remains, they can decide on how far apart in the interference pattern they need to measure for the separate measurements to become independent, and how long they need to wait between them for good results. While the precise numbers won't tell you much here, the end result of these considerations 
is that they can use about 250 channels for collection. I need to wait just under two picoseconds or two millionth of a millionth of a second between measurements. The raw data generated from this is not by itself very useful. It needs to be processed. For example, while it contains random bits, which could be assembled into random numbers, not all numbers are equally likely to occur. The processing seeks to change this and provide clean random data. In the first instance, the authors take differences of the light intensity across short time windows in order to obtain a more symmetrical distribution of random data. They then discard some of the bits which reflect the largest scale changes in light intensity and only keep what is referred to as the least significant bits. This loses some information, but makes it independent of the specific nature of the laser, leading to a more evenly distributed random data. Finally, they pair up measurement channels from distant points on the detector and scramble them together to improve randomness further. It may sound like they're doing quite a lot of things to their data, which should have been random to start with. However, this is fairly standard in physical random number generation and required to provide high quality data. Several of the collections of statistical tests for randomness, which I mentioned earlier, are then applied to show that the random numbers are in fact suitably random. Finally, using a combination of their experimental results and computer simulations of the laser, they show that the theoretical entropy content is another 10 times higher than the amount they're really extracting, to give an upper, if slightly utopical estimate of how fast random numbers could potentially be generated from a laser of their design. With all of these very encouraging results, it is important to say that this study is merely a proof of concept. The scientists use highly specialized and custom-made equipment, and even with this, there's a very crucial caveat to the 250 terabits per second rate of random bit generation. This is not a continuous run. The high-speed camera can only record very short bursts of data before its memory runs out, and the rate the authors give is calculated as if steady recording were possible. Furthermore, the required post-processing cannot yet be done in real time, on the fly, as I said. In 2018, a different group presented results from running a different laser-based random bit generator, which they fit into a simple box for a continuous 10 weeks. The speed of random bit generation they achieved, which is about 30,000 times slower than in the present study, is probably more representative of what is practically possible at the moment. This is not to take away from the fact, however, that our paper is a very exciting outlook on what is to come once measurement and processing technology catches up. Regardless of how fast exactly is realistic now and might be in the future, one thing is clear. Randomness in its modern applications has lost much of its former mystical character. On the other hand, all the physical processes which are now being exploited for the domestication of randomness happen to us humans all the time at much, much greater speeds even. The fact that we as living things function so uniformly amid all the chaos shows that we are fundamentally statistical in nature. To me, the inventors of Senate or the royal game of Ur have a point. Our being alive manages to balance incredibly tightly the predictable and the unpredictable. Maybe this is justification enough for seeing life itself as the combination of elements of strategy and chance, which I found to be intriguing when abandoning snakes and ladders. Thanks for listening to the Science Rumble. The show releases on the first of every month, so join in again next time for some brand new science. Thank you.